listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Hello, and welcome to PTCE's Pharmacy Connect, a podcast focused on continuing education created by pharmacists for pharmacists. PTCE is the leader in pharmacy and managed care education. In these episodes, listeners will be presented with the most recent clinical updates and strategies for implementing into practice. And now, here's our host and founder of the Pharmacy Podcast Network, Todd Yuri. Pharmacy Podcast Nation and listeners, this is the PTCE Pharmacy Connect Podcast. We're back. Love conversations with pharmacists who are on the cutting edge uh, innovating um, treatments, sharing with us existing treatments, what's the best practice, but also what's coming in the future for many of the conditions that we're going to be talking about. And today we're going to be examining the treatment landscapes of metastatic non-small cell lung cancer, expressing the targetable mutations of RET, MET, and KRAS. And we've, we have a, a pharmacist with us today who has really focused on this uh, Josiah Land, Dr. Josiah Land. Welcome to PTCE Pharmacy Connect. Hi, Todd. Thanks for having me. So we got to give our listeners a little back, a little bit of your background on yourself and, and where you're currently practicing. Yeah, of course. Um, so I'm a board certified oncology pharmacist, um, you know, went to pharmacy school about 10 years ago, finished up and um, did a couple years of residency, one at MD Anderson down in Houston, and then um, at Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York City. And I um, currently serve as one of the clinical pharmacy specialists for the thoracic oncology service at Memorial Sloan Kettering. And I've been in that role for about eight years now. So Josiah, what are we going to be focused on today? I kind of gave the title of the program, but we'd like to set the stage from, from your point of view. Yeah, so, you know, the metastatic non-small cell lung cancer space is pretty expansive, um, especially these days. Um, But today we're really going to be focusing on some very specific targetable mutations that have some recently approved therapies. And like you alluded to earlier, those mutations are RET, MET, and KRAS. And we're going to talk about some of the agents um, associated with the treatment of patients um, exhibiting those mutations and fusions. Um, and we're also going to, you know, obviously, because um, I'm a pharmacist and hopefully we have a lot of pharmacists tuning in, we're going to talk about how pharmacists can help improve adherence to these oral therapies, manage toxicity, um, manage and set expectations for outcomes for patients um, that express these these three subtypes of, of non-small cell lung cancer. Josiah, I'm looking forward to this conversation before we started uh, our recording I read through many of the notes that are uh, meticulously put together by PTCE Pharmacy Connect's team. And you know what jumped out at me was the fact that there's lung diseases and lung cancers out there that have nothing to do with smoking. And I always thought, boy, that would probably be, you know, relevant. And it's it's interesting and and it's it needs to be kind of talked about, especially in between physicians and specialists and our pharmacists that focus on this. Lung cancer continues to be a large contributor to morbidity and mortality in the United States. Could you briefly share with the with with the listeners the state of lung cancer in, in, in the U.S.? Absolutely. Um, so I'm going to get to your um, 
question about the smoking, um, the smoking comment just a minute. Um, but just kind of more in general, in, in 2021, there were still about 230,000 diagnoses of lung cancer uh, in the country. And lung cancer is still unfortunately the leading cause of cancer death in both males and females in the United States. Um, and you know, advanced and metastatic and metastatic disease, meaning disease, lung cancer that has spread outside of the lungs or maybe spread outside of the primary lung of origin. Um, that that um, stage of disease actually has the most dismal prognosis and is associated with a five years overall survival of around 7%. Um, however, it's not all bad news. I know I started off with bad news, but um, there've been a lot of advances that have been made over the last couple of decades, um, which has been a very dynamic part of my learning experience and me developing as a new practitioner. Um, and these advances really have translated to more meaningful increases in overall and progression-free survival, um, especially in that advanced in metastatic disease space. Um, and these life-prolonging treatment strategies have included the advance of immunotherapies and the focus of today's conversation, these more biomarker or mutation-specific targeted therapies. Um, and interesting, you bring up earlier about the, for people who maybe don't have a smoking history, we actually see a couple of these mutations and not, not limited to the conversation today, but many mutations that we find in uh, patients with little or no smoking history. Um, you know, it's, um, it's exciting and reassuring to me that smoking rates have gone down over the last several decades. Um, but there's still work to be done because we, we see these mutations that have emerged in, in non-smokers. And um, um, there's a lot of opportunity in that space as well. Uh, Josiah, um, a generation ago, we would have never talk, talked about the issues with vaping and, and how that could become a future podcast to really talk about specific right. uh, toxicities coming from that. But today we're going to focus on some of the non-small cell lung cancer mutations. And particularly some of the less common mutations that have come uh, to the forefront in, in our targeted therapies for advanced disease. Josiah, could you give us more information around the, that and the mutations that you've described, as well as um, you know, some of the non-small cell lung cancer treatment options that are out there? Sure. So um, I'll kind of briefly start talking about some of the incidents or how often we see these, these three mutations. Um, the incidence of, of RET fusions um, and sometimes, forgive me if I kind of go back between mutations and fusions, um, it's a little bit of semantics with the, the particulars of the molecular environment. So um, RET fusions usually occur in around 1.2 to 2% of non-small cell lung cancer patients, and alterations in the MET gene occur in about 2 to 5% cases, so um, relatively rare in the non-small cell lung cancer space. Um, KRAS mutations are more common. They account for about 20 to 30% of non-small cell lung cancer cases, but you have to keep in mind there's a variety of um, KRAS mutations that have been identified. Um, specifically, the targetable KRAS G12C mutation, which is what we'll focus on from a drug perspective in this conversation, it, um, occurs a little bit less commonly in about 14% of patients. Now, you might think that these mutations sound relatively rare, and it's like, why are we so worried about them? But remember, I said there was a really high incidence of lung cancer in this country and across the world. So when you take these relatively small percentages, you're still getting a, a large chunk of, of people that are that are afflicted potentially with these um, with these mutations in their lung cancer. And so now remember we have recently FDA approved therapies that we're going to talk about in a little while that can be really highly effective for these patients compared with you know more historical chemotherapy regimens. 
Um, and then, you know, moving into a little bit with um, testing for these mutations, you know, we employ molecular testing in non-small cell lung cancer patients, and that's really standard of care for all individuals that have a diagnosis of advanced and metastatic non-small cell lung cancer. Um, the testing for these mutations allow practitioners to identify predictive or prognostic biomarkers um, that then allow us to identify effective biomarker-directed therapies um, for these alterations that are driving the patient's lung cancer, um, or they may inform the patient's prog prognosis. Excellent. So wait a second. You mentioned molecular testing. Could you delve more into the biomarker testing and when that should be performed for patients that are diagnosed with the non-small uh, cell lung cancer? Sure. So really anyone now, but especially um, with patients with advanced and metastatic disease, should be tested um, for the minimum number of recommended gene um, testing that is put out You know by the largest body is the, the NCCN, the National Comprehensive Cancer Network. Um, so usually this biomarker testing is either performed um, on blood samples or tissue samples or sometimes both. Um, <clears throat> blood samples are obviously the, the easiest to, to draw from the patient. Tissue samples can be a little more complicated um, because that usually involves some sort of minor surgical procedure, um, but some sort of testing should be done at the point of diagnosis. Um, at times, like I said, we might use both blood and tissue to kind of get the full picture um, to make sure we're getting, um, you know, testing for all the different mutations. Um, and this was all historically validated in the metastatic setting, um, but now we're even seeing utility in the earlier stage setting, in stage one, two, and, and early three lung cancer because we have um, approvals for adjuvant-targeted therapies, meaning targeted therapies that can be utilized to sustain a response after, after you know, kind of curative intent um, chemotherapy or radiation therapy. Um, although today we're going to be focusing more on the advanced and metastatic space, it's important to remember that um, it's really there's a utility to test all patients um, at this point. Okay, so what biomarker-driven therapies are currently available for non-small uh, cell lung cancer um, expressing RET-and-MET and KROS, uh, the G12C mutations, and how do these therapies fit into current um, NCCN treatment guidelines? Right. Um, so, you know, we're about to jump into a little bit of alphabet soup here, so <laughs> stay with me. Um, but we'll start with RET. So for RET, there's um, two agents that are recently approved, Prosetinib or the trade name Gavretto, or Selpercatinib or the trade name Ritebmo. Um, and these agents can be used upfront as first-line therapy or as subsequent therapy for patients um, who have RET fusions in their non-small cell lung cancer. <clears throat> for MET, Exxon 14 skipping mutations specifically, um, we have two drugs FDA approved, Capmatinib or Tabrecta, and we have Tepotinib or Tepmetco. Um, we also have Crizotinib, which is an NCCN um, recommended therapy for MET exon 14 skipping mutations as well. However, it does not carry that FDA approval, but we, um, we have historically used that in practice before the, the approvals of, of Capmatinib and Tepotinib uh, with success. These agents for MET mutations can also be used upfront or a subsequent therapy uh, for patients. Um, and there's also some utility, although not FDA approved, in patients who have a high level MET amplification. 
Um, a couple of the studies to, to study catmatinib and topotinib also looked at patients who had um, different levels of, of MET amplification. And so there is some utility there. And then finally for KRAS G12C mutations, um, our only and recently approved agent is sodoracib or Lumacras is the trade name. Um, and currently sodoracib is approved only as subsequent therapy for patients who have had progression on first-line treatment. Now that first-line treatment can can be a variety of things. It can be immunotherapy, monotherapy, a combination of chemoimmunotherapy, or patients who had chemotherapy alone, as well as um, they have to express that KRAS G12C mutation. And there's a lot of different KRAS mutations um, that occur in non-small cell lung cancer, so it's important to identify those G12Cs specifically. Josiah, I always appreciate when our pharmacists come on and start really breaking down um, the latest treatments, um, innovation and in coming treatments, timing of treatments. I mean, there's so many pieces of the puzzle. That's what. That's why you are amazing at what you're doing as a, as a pharmacist focused on a specific condition. We're wondering about how do these targeted therapies work and what are the key findings in terms of clinical response to the treatments? Yeah, so... Um... You know, I am a little bit of, you have to be a little bit of a nerd to do what I do. And so I think it's um, it's really interesting, actually, how these targeted therapies work. And, you know, these mechanisms of tyrosine kinase inhibitors um, are not, not so new. We've had plenty of tyrosine kinase inhibitors throughout different types of cancer for, for many years now. <clears throat> but all of these agents that we're discussing today specifically are small molecules kinase inhibitors. They disrupt signal transduction pathways via several modes of inhibition. Um, and the result is to block the constitutive activation of the cellular pathway that's actually driving the patient's malignancy or causing those cancer um, cells to kind of multiply exponentially. Um, so for the purposes of this conversation, the agents that we're discussing would serve to block the oncogenic or oncologic signal transduction that's related to the alterations in the RET, MET, and KRAS pathways. So kind of going one by one, the RET TKIs are going to block that activation of the RET kinase to stop that downstream signaling um, that affects the JAK-STAT and MAP kinase pathways, excuse me. Um, and these are all kind of hyper-proliferative kind of circumstances. Um, MET TKIs block the MET kinase, which includes that exon 14 skipping mutation that I mentioned when we were talking about approvals um, to induce apoptosis in the MET-dependent tumor cell lines. And then finally for KRAS, those mutations are typically found in, and we'll go back to your uh, question about smoking history, actually KRAS mutant patients typically do have a pretty substantial uh, smoking history and historically has been associated with a poor prognosis. Um, and our approved therapy is targeted to block that G12C mutation to specifically stop uncontrolled cell growth uh, further down the line. Um, and then we can kind of jump into some of the response rates. Um, and some of the trials um, that looked at these meds. Yeah, could you kind of get specific with some of the ones you've already mentioned and kind of break those down for us? Sure. <clears throat> so with pralcetinib, um, that was evaluated in the ARO trial. Um, that included about 114 patients, and these were a mix of first-line and pretreated patients. And it was found to be associated with an overall response rate of about 60 to 70%. And I don't have survival data for that drug specifically at this point, at this point, because that's still maturing. Um, but when you think, I think um, when I talk about kind of the, the response rates and the survival data, if you think back 
for those of us who have been maybe practicing in the oncology space for a while, you know, it was rare to get those levels of response rates and really durable um, survival um, outcomes for patients who are only receiving platinum chemotherapy upfront for metastatic disease. Um, Selpercatinib was evaluated in the Libretto 001 trial. That was 144, a mix of first line and pretreated patients. Again, associated with overall response rates really high, 65 to 85%. Um, survival data is still maturing with that trial as well. But the platinum pretreated patients exhibited a duration of response approaching 18 months. So these are patients who've already had at least one line of therapy, and we're still seeing some responses ongoing for more than a year, almost two years. Um, Capmatinib for MET Exxon 14 was evaluated in the geometry mono one trial. Um, that was 160 patients, first line and pretreated. Um, and that was associated with response rates of anywhere from 40 to 70%, uh, median progression free survivals of five to 12 months. Um, with those higher response rates and longer progression-free survivals being found in the treatment-naive patients. So again, reiterating, it's important to test these patients up front. You might get a little more bang for your buck if you use these up front um, as, as opposed to subsequent therapy. Uh, Tapotinib was evaluated in the VISION trial. That was 152 patients, again, both first-line and pretreated, And that was associated with an overall response rate, similar to Capmatinib, around 43%. Uh, regardless of the line of treatment, and as well as similar median progression-free survivals of approximately 11 months. And then our final agent, Sotorasib, was evaluated in the Code Break 100 trial. That was 124 patients, and all of these patients had to have progression of disease after first-line therapy, like I mentioned um, with the approval. Um, Sotorasib was found to be associated with a response rate of around 37% in the second line and beyond. Um, a median duration of response of 11 months, progression-free survival of seven months, and an overall survival just over a year at 12 and a half months. So um, really exciting data um, for um, patients in the first line, as well as patients who may have had um, a pretty heavily pretreated um, history. So before we go any further, let's take a pause and let's do um, kind of a review of any adverse effects, uh, toxicity to be mindful of when monitoring patients on these therapies? Definitely. Um, <clears throat> so with adverse effects, um, I tend to think because, you know, we have more than one agent to, to target the same uh, mutation. So I tend to think of these things more as like a class effect. And um, with there's some nuances from agent to agent, but um, in general for our RET inhibitors, pralcetinib and selpercatinib, um, these also have VEGF inhibition. So again, for you know my people that have been in the oncology space for a while, you think back to toxicities of VEGF-directed agents. So very commonly, patients will exhibit hypertension. Um, we do teaching on um, impaired wound healing, um, especially for patients who may need surgical procedures, et cetera. Um, these agents can also pose a risk for hepatotoxicity, so it's important to monitor um, liver function tests while they're on treatment at regular intervals. And um, finally, selpercatinib has a unique side effect that it can actually affect the QTC interval. Um, so it would be prudent to at least get a baseline EKG and monitor that uh, from time to time. For our MET inhibitors, um, capmatinib and tapotinib, um, hallmark, got to monitor for it, side effect is peripheral edema. 
Um, I've seen patients with pretty significant peripheral edema, especially in the lower extremities. Um, it can be pretty complex to manage. There's not kind of a one size fits all way to manage these. Um, you know, we definitely do dose reductions. We have patients monitor their weight, report edema um, as soon as it starts happening. Um, but the incidence of the of edema with med inhibitors is upwards of 40 to 50 percent. Again, these drugs can be hepatotoxic, so we monitor LFTs. Um, and then just kind of in general, um, just about all of most, if not all the, the lung um, targeted therapies, TKIs, have a small risk for interstitial lung disease. And so that can be complex in our patient population because <clears throat> everybody al already has some symptom of shortness of breath or cough. And so it's important to know that baseline and monitor if, if there's any signs of inflammation in the lung as well. And then finally with sotorasib, we're gonna monitor LFTs really closely. We're gonna monitor the patients for GI distress. There can be you know, um, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. Um, but um, overall, like I would say, the drugs are relatively well tolerated compared to historical um, interventions. Um, but important to educate patients and and have them report side effects as they occur to their to their team. Josiah, it's it's good to hear from a pharmacist who focuses on specific conditions, specific disease states, um, and even focusing on lungs as a as a specialty. And and I know that you're probably picking up on trends of what's happening in treatment modalities. So. What are those trends? What are these therapies being used in, in your daily practice? Uh, how, how is it working? Yeah, so, um, you know, in my practice specifically, you know, everybody that kind of walks in the door, we do pan mutational testing for all patients with non-small cell lung cancer <clears throat> to identify, you know, any potential targeted therapies. Um, there has, I think, been a shift um, in the last decade or so with the advent of these targeted therapies, um, you know, lung cancer is no longer a one size fits all sort of treatment plan, probably back in the, in the nineties when we were still developing our knowledge on, on the histology and, and the drivers of, of lung cancer, you know, most people just got kind of standard platinum based chemotherapy. Um, but now that we've identified all these driver mutations in lung cancer, um, we know that that, you know, just like I said, that one size fits all approach is really not the best method and individualizing the treatment of lung cancer is really what's made um, a really big difference over the last decade or so um, with with kind of optimizing outcomes for patients. Um, you know, it's a little bit of a catch 22 because with the advent of these new therapies, we also by ourselves increase complexity of cancer care in general and you know, new costs and, and things like that to think about, um, as well as new adverse effect profiles. So it's important to stay you know, um, aware of all of these new approved anti-cancer therapies, what their place in therapy is so that you're utilizing them correctly. Um, you're evaluating the patiently thoroughly when selecting therapies and thinking about comorbidities, contraindications perhaps, um, and then closely monitoring and managing those side effects as they occur for patients on therapy. Okay, so trends is one thing, and appreciate that, and especially your own um, your own environment and, and practice day to day. Let Let's talk about like the touch points and and where pharmacists have um, have to to help and guide the patient in their journey within these treatments. Can you walk us through the the different touch points pharmacists have within the patient journey um, as they start one of these targeted therapies? 
absolutely. Um, so the caveat is that might look a little bit different depending on where you work as, you know, an infusion pharmacist or a clinical pharmacist or, you know, working in an oncology ward in a hospital. Um, but I think we can all agree that there's certain things that we should be able to communicate um, as pharmacists. You know, one, um, you know, I do a lot of teaching with patients, especially with starting some of these newer targeted therapies. And so, you know, just kind of your bread and butter pharmacy counseling points, you know, dosing, um, side effects, what to expect, how to store, you know, the kind of stuff that that we as pharmacists are really good at. Um, but I think that we're also empowered because we have great access to the data and we understand the data that we can communicate, you know, um, in line with the physician conversation, some of the goals of therapy. So, you know, keep in mind that in most of these cases in the advanced and metastatic setting, these therapies are not curative, but they're palliative in nature. Um, so we were using them to obtain the best response possible and balancing that with the management of side effects um, to achieve the best quality of life possible for the patient. Um, <clears throat> like I've been saying, I feel like I'm repeating myself, but monitoring for response and toxicity is equally as important. Um, typically, the oncologists um, in my practice are going to scan, uh, repeat uh, CAT scans or PET scans of patients about at the, probably around the six week mark after initiating. Um, and it's at that point um, when patients are brought back in after starting therapies that I think pharmacists can play a really big role. Obviously, we're also assessing um, response, looking at scans to see how patients are, are responding radiologically. Um, however, it's good to remember that patients who have a good radiologic response typically can exhibit a change, a positive change in their cancer-related symptoms much earlier than the scan that we perform. Um, and so I think that's something that I use in my counseling sessions to say, hey, like you can potentially start feeling a lot better in the first days or weeks of taking this medication. And that can be a pointer to, to that the, the drug is working well for them. Um, we're also careful to explain some of the more common side effects of the agents to patients, as well as the rare side effects that are more serious so that they're um, empowered, the, not only the patient, but caregivers as well, that they're empowered to be able to report those symptoms early. Um, patients should know that there are typically many ways to provide supportive care via dose reductions or supportive care medications um, to really keep that keep them on track with effective therapy. Um, and then also really stressing adherence to taking the medication. That's also a big part um, that we play. Um, these medications are not going to work if they're not taken appropriately, as the old adage says. Um, and then if a patient's having issues staying adherent to their therapy, it's important that pharmacists kind of ask those questions that pharmacists are good at asking, like the whys. Well, why did you miss your dose on Monday, Tuesday? Or why did you, if it's a twice a day drug, why did you miss it uh, in the evenings last week or whatever? Is it because they're kind of trying to cut costs? Uh, we see that in practice. Um, is it because of a drug toxicity? Uh, that may merit a dose reduction. So it's important to really drill down and get to the root cause of, of, of why adherence is an issue in certain patients. So I think of the attention to different sectors of pharmacy care um, specialty, um, compounding our community pharmacist, uh, senior care focused. I also think of our health systems out there and, and ways that pharmacists in different hospital practice areas can impact the care of patients being prescribed these therapies. And I'm thinking like, Josiah, what are some of the challenges pharmacists have within management of these agents within health systems? Yeah, um, so I think just like, and even um, 
you know, me working at a cancer center, we have so many different varieties or flavors of pharmacists, you know, within a specific health system um, that we all have our own roles and we all play a part um, in the bigger <clears throat> pharmacy production, if you will. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think that um, it's important to for for all pharmacists who interact with cancer patients on any level, um, especially within health systems, um, to find that that way that you kind of stay um, aware and updated on these targeted therapies. You know, um, we have patients who continue to receive targeted therapies while they're admitted to the hospital. Um, so inpatient pharmacists may be verifying, you know, novel oral chemotherapies or targeted therapies that maybe they haven't seen or haven't worked with very much. Um, you know, we have specialty pharmacies that are maybe that the pharmacist um, in the clinic or the pharmacist in the hospitals liaising with in another state. We may have a specialty pharmacy tied to the hospital that's speaking to help coordinate care. Um, you know, inpatient or outpatient pharmacies, pharmacists just kind of at the, the very foundation level can ensure that patients are receiving, you know, right therapy, right dose, right time correct route of administration um, based on orders from the oncologist. You know, um, I work very closely with the oncologist on a face-to-face -face setting and we're discussing dose modifications and, and things of that nature. Um, I also tend to be a little bit of a liaison between the oncologist and maybe a, a staff pharmacist that's verifying an order, um, whether it's in the inpatient setting or whether it's one of our specialty pharmacists. Um, so I think it's as much as it is um, that we stay kind of vigilant as individual practitioners. It's also important to pull you pull to your strengths um, and to the experience of other pharmacists that you work with in your health system. Dr. Josiah Land, this has been an excellent conversation. Thank you so so much of the details that you've provided us. I want listeners to know uh, that we'll have a a place for you to go. There's going to be a link in the show notes for you to get more information on this subject, but. Before you go, Josiah, we always ask um, our final question, and that is, as from one pharmacist to another, what do you say to those listeners right now? What do you say is the single most important takeaway for our pharmacists listening in right now? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I think what I'd want my pharmacy colleagues to take away from this conversation is one that you know, I recognize that the current approach to the treatment of non-small cell lung cancer can be so overwhelming. And, you know, even for me, someone who's just kind of in it every day, it can be overwhelming for me, the speed at which things are getting approved. Um, although, um, but although that am amount of information can be overwhelming, I just want to stress how important it is to work with the oncology team at your practice site to help them um, select the most effective treatment regimens for patients who qualify for these newly approved therapies. I'd also encourage everyone to find a voice to advocate for patients at your practice. Um, you know, I meet practitioners kind of all over when I maybe give a CE talk or something that they're not aware of the testing methods at their site or, or are our patients being prescribed this. So really I encourage people to, to find their voice, ask those important questions regarding testing methods, Find out if there are preventable or modifiable barriers to accessing new targeted therapies and use your oncology pharmacy expertise to educate and optimize patients and providers alike about optimal dosing, supportive care strategies, and monitoring parameters for all these therapies. Um, we as pharmacists really bring so much to the table and we're really vital parts of the oncology care teams that are tasked with navigating this really complex landscape of today's non-small cell lung cancer treatment. 
Josiah, that was awesome. Thank you so much for this today. I want to give a shout out to our pharmacist. We know the pressure that you're under. Um, many of you are even going through some, some burnout and that's okay. Uh, the PTCE Pharmacy Connect team does this level of quality podcast so that if you're on the if you're on the go, if you're mobile, you're able to get your CE when you need it. Um, but reach out to us if there's anything that we can ever do for you, the PTCE Pharmacy Connect team or Pharmacy Podcast Network. We are here for you. We're one uh, together. I always say hashtag TogetherRx. Josiah, <laughs> you have been awesome, and we thank you so much for your time today. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Todd. I enjoyed it. Thanks for tuning in to the PTCE Pharmacy Connect podcast. Your feedback is important to us. Please share with us your thoughts on this episode and other topics you'd like to learn about. Go to pharmacytimes.org forward slash contact and send us a message. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.